police have identified more victims and plan on more than just the four murder charges filed today. Confirm earlier reports of cannibalism. The building was a scene of ghoulish slaughter. A large kettle on the stove which held boiled body parts. Identified more victims. Killed even more. Plan on more than just the four murder charges filed today. Had sex with some of his victims before he killed them. And that he was also a necrophiliac. You are now listening to Grinding True Crimes with your hosts, Maddie Mack, Todd Fox, and Gabby Gab. Hey, 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 welcome into another episode of Grinding True Crimes with your host, Todd Fox, with a narrator. Maddie Matt, how's everyone doing today? Maddie Matt is in control of this one as he starts off with episode three of the girl in the box if you haven't heard the first two i suggest go back because you will be completely lost with this one if you jump into it now so check out uh, episode one and two if you haven't already sit back and enjoy part three because i'm i'm new to this one as well and first before we get to the episode you can find us on spotify on iHeartRadio, itunes podbean and any other um service that you subscribe to as far as podcasts under grinding true crime so with that being said it is now time for Maddie Matt to get into part three of The Girl in the Box. Yes, we are. Thank you, Todd. And we're back. And we're going to jump right into it. Uh, no summary this time. So let's get, jump into it. So um, last time we talked, we were they were doing a trial for Mr. Rosterick, uh because they found some evidence on him. And uh, at this trial... So we're going to say at the start of the trial, a few people in court had taken much notice of Michael Herman. And if you don't know who Michael Herman is, that is the brother of Ursula Herman, the girl that was murdered. And so despite his distinctive appearance, he wore his gray hair in a ponytail. And at the time also sported a thin sideburn, sideburns down to his jaw. And he was not the kind of man who draws attention to himself. So after graduating from high school, he studied teaching in Oxford and then opened a music store, selling instruments, equipment, including tape recorders. He eventually got married, had three children, and um, he fostered another one. And um, it also said that people knew what happened to Ursula, sometimes asked if it made Michael anxious about his own kids. But for some reason, it didn't. So this was Michael, the oldest one, who uh, was actually searching for his sister and really loved his sister. And she, he, uh, her sister, his sister, his sister uh, took study classes with him in sports music. So Michael's really attached to his sister. So um, moving on. So he never thought about looking for the perpetrator himself. But that was his job for, he felt that was the job for the police. Though he felt at peace in his life, his sister's death still felt to him like an unclosed circle. Now the trial in the status of as a co-plaintiff offered an opportunity to close it. While most of, I think I pronounced this word, Nickel, Nickelbledge was passive observer in court, Michael decided to take his role far more serious. He would not allow the family to be a victim a second time. So now that the oldest brother is taking the trial and he's the co-plaintiff and now they got the suspects in hand and 
distance of what's going to take place. But before the trial started, to the surprise of his state-assigned lawyer, Michael had requested full access to the case file, which ran into tens of thousands of scanned pages. And in the first few weeks of the trial, he got through 6,000 pages, locking himself in the study at home at night. So he was really focused on trying to find out who, if this person murdered his sister. Jeez, that guy's, so he's obsessed. His, man, yeah, he was in. He was in it. He was locked in. So his memories of Ursula were very strong, and he recalled how, just despite her liveliness, she was also cautious at times, very sensitive, uh, growing upset when some of her schoolmates repeatedly misbehaved. Uh, she was really, like, you know, kind of like him, a little bit, very passionate. Mm-hmm. So reading through the typewritten police reports, he realized he had forgotten many details of the horrific day of September 1981. Even the fact that he had helped Ursula with her piano practice just a few hours before she was kidnapped. He even forgot those things. It was as if he felt like his brain had somewhat blanked out a part of his life. To Michael, there was much to suggest Mercervic might have committed the crime, but there were also things that troubled him about the persecution he could not understand why Half Fingers, which was the other uh, accused uh, suspect, revoked confession was not being treated as a plausible when it was dismissed all those years before. From the police files, it was clear that Half Finger had a serious alcohol problem, and while in detention, he claimed to have experienced hallucination. He was also chronically worked on, and in 2008, he was questioned. Uh, questioned his former wife they, uh, his former wife said that he was a lazy guy who would never have agreed to dig a large hole so now it's starting to see now he's starting to figure out well wait a minute you know why did he say that but then you know details says that he was lazy he wasn't that's not his, really his style mm-hmm. so as the court heard Pathfinger's confession was not even signed the investigators wrote it down from memories weeks later. And with Masterick, there was no DNA proof connecting Pathfinger to the crime. Before the trial, the police exhumed Pathfinger's body, but there was no match of the genetic profile that was discovered among the evidence a few years ago. So nothing's matching up so far, but they still believe that Masterick is that guy. Had and as I recall, prior in the second show, I believe Pathfinger, the other gentleman, has already deceased her. Mm-hmm. So most, the most concerning thing to Michael was the tape recorder. With his background in music, he knew a lot about acoustics and sound engineering. And he could not understand how a tape recorder could be definitively linked to the ransom call all those years ago. So his experience in music is starting to kick in. So even if the reel-to-reel device had been used to record the jingle from the radio, as the persecution alleged, the kidnapper would still have to transfer that recording to a second, more portable device, since the calls were from Hermaine's house were made from a payphone. So the acoustic environment in, in the booth at the kidnapper's home would have also influenced what the police eventually heard and recorded at the other end of the phone line. So he's starting to do a little detective work himself. 
and be based off his experience, he's not he's starting to see things aren't adding up. Mm-hmm. So Michael's lawyer had advised him not to make big deals out of them, not to make a big deal out of it, because he said, "You don't, you don't do this as a uh, as as a living." But I did not think about his habits. I just did what I thought was right. Michael said, and he had wrote a letter to the court calling the sound experience, sound expert report that the tape recorder was incomplete or one-sided. So now he doesn't even believe that the tape recorder. Uh, was even in the case. Was it even in the um, not the case, but was even involved in it. Okay. So the judge were not happy, but the law they were obliged to read out and they were not happy, but but by the law they were obliged to read out the letter in court. And it was highly unusual that a sensational in, in, in intervention a member of the prosecution team, the victim's brother, no less acting in the favor of the defense. And when the verdict against Mercerick was announced, Michael made a statement at the court. I am not convinced of his guilt, he said, but neither am I convinced of his innocence. Instead of the circle being closed, it had opened further. Hmm. Now, he don't know what to do. He don't think he did it, but he don't think he's innocent, but he's got some investigation to do. Now, <laughs> let me ask you, Todd. What your detective might say, if something ain't fishy, or if, if something don't feel right to you, do you do your own investigation, or do you feel like, okay, you know what, the law says this, I'ma just just let it ride. Uh, if something doesn't feel feel right, I gotta question it. You always gotta look at both sides, or if there's a possibility. Uh, if there's just an inkling of doubt, you have to look into it. That's not just a detective. That's like a lawyer aspect out of it, too. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what he did. And Smart man. We'll continue. Smart man. Now, six months has passed after the trial. Now, it was late 2010, and Michael began to notice a strange high-frequency noise in his left ear. He said, at night, the hissing will wake him up and prevent him from falling back to sleep. Even worse, it even often tormented him during the day, especially when he was trying to teach music. And this is something he had never experienced before. So he thought it might have been related to the trial. The court appointed a, a psychologist on hand to assist relatives of Pine's victims. And he, they examined him and agreed that the stress of the court case was probably likely why he was hearing these things. Now, during the trial, Mercevic had sent Michael a letter, not to thank him for questioning the tape recorder, but to suggest that they were somehow on the same side. Now, from prison, Mercevic kept writing and even sent a Christmas card. And in 2013, Michael finally replied. Now, this was three years later. He said, I was surprised to receive a letter from you because it was certain and clear to you that despite all the doubts I have about your guilt, I have considerable reservation about you as a person if you are not the culprit i wish for you more i wish for more new insight that you can be rehabilitated if you are the culprit go to hell oh <laughs> strong words yes but I, I i i applaud him because even though his emotions is involved in this this is little his little sister that was murdered he still has a side to him that says, you know what, maybe 
they're saying this is him, but it don't feel like it's him. And because he can, he's saying that he can show a, not compassion, but he's he's realistic about things. Mm-hmm. So I'll give him credit for that. Now by then, Michael was increasingly skeptical about Mercer's guilt, and after the trial had ended, Michael kept returning. Night after night, his ear kept ringing to the case file, which he had stored on his computer. He arranged the ev- and he did this very meticulously. He arranged the evidence in a folder. He had put a strain; it had put a strain on his marriage so bad that he separated from his wife in 20, 2012. Wow! He could not let it go. He couldn't let this go. He it, it just pretty much took over. So he felt he owed it to his parents and to himself, even to the German public, to pursue the truth. What drives me is ethics doing what is morally right. This is what he told the court. And it was just wrong for the case to just end like And there's a picture of uh, Warner Mercerick in the uh, photo here. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pull it up. So he came up with a plan. In 2013, he had filed a civil claim seeking 20,000 pounds in damages from the Mercerick for causing tinnitus. So it was... It was, it was a legal ruse since Mercerick would defend the case on the basis that he was wrongly convicted and so could not be considered responsible. The court would have to reconsider the facts of the criminal trial before coming to a conclusion. Now, this would be an opportunity for Michael to get closer to the truth. So this is a smart man, and I give him credit. He does what he needs to do to get to the, the bottom of the truth. And he was very determined to find out what happened or who murdered his sister. So the judge knew that what was going on, and they were pissed off. Jostin Feller, who was Michael's lawyer since 2012, told him, told, told him um, when he met in his office uh, that they tried several times to stop going forward. The court insisted that an independent psychiatrist examine Michael and to rule on whether his tendonitis was caused by the trial or not. So after the psychologist confirmed it was, the case was finally went ahead in 2016. So you see all those years from 2012 all the way to 2016. So it's been it's been a long few years. Yeah. For his, for that family. So unlike the criminal trial where the media was focused on Mercedes, now it was focused on Michael. So he found himself having to explain his pupils, to explain to his pupils in his music and religion religion classes, who knew him as a reserved, kind teacher, why they were so seeing his face in the newspaper and on TV. So here's a guy who was really quiet, pretty still to himself. Now he's the public figure, and everyone's seeing this guy. Now he has to explain, like, well, well, what's going on, and he had to explain why. And why he's tied into so, it. Yeah. Hmm. He took to journalists in etching and into the forest where Ursula was kidnapped. Even so, apart from Hermaine's close family and friends, few understood why he was pursuing this case. A local journalist who covered the criminal in civil cases told me that his newsroom's colleague often asked him why Hermaine could not just let it go. 
one of the journalists said, I myself is still trying to work out why Michael Romaine is acting like this. And, you know, he's a quiet and calm type, but still he looks into the, the files. He seems a little obsessed. So now people are starting to think this guy is crazy, his own, her own brother. Mm -hmm. But so as the civil trial went on, it became clear that it was not the, that he was not the only person with doubt from the original verdict. So appearing for the defense was a retired physician, an amateur sound expert named Bernard Hader, who had built the first tape recorder from scratch in 1960. He had lived in the village just a few miles away from Etching where they are originally from. He vividly remembered the coverage of the crime from 1981, and though he had never heard of Masaryk before his arrest, Hader had followed the 2009 trial in the media, and like Michael, he was highly skeptical about that tape recorder. So he later borrowed a similar machine. He got a hold of the ransom call recording and tried to see if it was possible to replicate the finale so after years of testing, he included, what do you think? Did he prove that a tape recorder wasn't right? Well, you think he, he proved that it wasn't or, able to do that? No, I mean, he proved that it was right or it was admissible? Well, he proved that you couldn't do it. Oh, okay. It was not. Yeah. And he offered his assistant and Mercerich's lawyer. So now they're trying to see... Now they're trying to help Masaryk, who is the main suspect, who's already arrested. Because now they're starting to see that, wait a minute, that tape recording evidence that he used, that they said that he uh, was the main key to getting him arrested, it, it, it wasn't, that, that doesn't work that way. So now they're trying to figure out the real truth. Okay. So when, um, so when Michael visited Hader, they, he borrowed the tape recorder and after a lunch of wiener schnitzels and potatoes, he had told Michael, <laughs> he said Michael was the only person in this original trial who understood what the problem with the evidence was. He said it was impossible, but he was still sitting on the wrong side of the court. So toward the end of the civil case, Michael had gained another ally. In London, a German academic named Barbara Zipster read an article online about his efforts to get to the truth. Zipser was a child in Germany when Ursula was kidnapped. So she can kind of relate to, uh, well, kind of was close to the story. And, and she recalled the horror she felt then. And in terms of the impact, it was the German equivalent of the Madeline McCain case. I don't know anything about the Madeline McCain's case. I'm, do you know anything about that? Nothing about that, no. Nothing. Well, they said it was equivalent to that, so it must have been something big. So Zipser had told um, Michael when they first met that year that she too thought whoever did this, they she wanted the person in jail. So she don't think, she don't know who it is, but she really wanted that person in jail, but she too wants to help out Michael to find out the real truth as well. So since Zipser uh, specified in linguistic profiling, at a Royal uh, University of London, she used modern profile technology to identify authors of ancient Greek medical texts. So she decided to compare the ransom notes sent by the kidnappers to the samples of Mercerich's writing, which Hader had posted on the internet. 
So Zipser analyzed the words used and the writing style. Whoever composed this ransom note was well-educated, she said, a native speaker pretending to be foreign by writing in broken German. I am sure it was not Mercer, Zipser said. Uh-oh. Yeah. Looks like somebody somebody had messed up convicting the wrong person. Wouldn't be the first time. Wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> it's just crazy how all these experts came to the defense of, well, not really the defense, but they're just trying to get to the truth. But they doing all these experts coming in, coming in, trying to kind of help Mercerick. Mm-hmm. And it's just crazy, you know. You know, some people might say, "Well, it is what it is." You know, they got the guy; he did it. Yeah, yeah, checkered past but, and all that. Yeah, yeah, but no, they 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 want to get to the bottom of it, and they are determined. Okay. So. Her opinion only hardened after she went to meet Michael and Jeremy and spent many hours going through the case files with him. So she knew this was an incredible story. And she said that Michael had done a very good job in investigating the work. And she had supported him in his finding. And for years after the criminal trial, Michael thought there was still about a 50% chance that Mercer was the kidnapper. But now... He puts it at one percent. Wow! So now he don't believe he did it. He did it at all. So now two years have passed. Now we're going to August 2018. Jeez! The civil case concluded. Yeah, I know, man. The civil case concluded, and the court ordered Masharik to pay Michaels seven thousand uh, Deutschmark money. What's the word? Uh, Deutschmarks. There you go, Deutschmark. Mm-hmm. Ordered Marcer uh, pay Michael that much money for his causing and his tendonitis. So it was a victory to Michael. To pre- it was a victory that to Michael presented a loss, since to arrive at the decision, judge first needed to agree with the criminal court that Mercer, together with his unidentified accomplices, was indeed the man who had kidnapped Ursula. Mm. So in an open letter to the Bavarian state and the media, Michael wrote, my sister's fate has stayed with me for 37 years. And to this day, it is unclear who was actually responsible for her death. It could be that the Osberg legal system is not actually interested in solving the case of Ursula Hermain, the death of my little sister. If the courts decides to close the peripheral lid, it should be well aware that one cannot set the truth away. So he was willing to go toe to toe with the justice system. Whoa. Yeah. So since Marcerick was arrested in 2008, he has been presented by Walter Ruback, one of Bavaria's best known defense lawyers. Ruback sees things in black and white. And if his client asks him whether he believes in their innocent, as Mercerick did in 2008, he brushes away the question, and he will tell you, I told him I don't believe any of those clients. My job is my job. Mm-hmm. So basically, he got a stone-cold uh, lawyer. Okay. So so it was clear that Mercerick was a person who could have committed something like that. But there was no hard fact. It was a circumstantial case at its finest, Rubach, Rubach said. 
I am still upset how he was convicted. But uh, rather, uh, so Ruback, even though he knows his client could be that way, he felt like, you know what? The evidence doesn't shoot in my client's favor. So I don't know why he was convicted anyway. So even though Ruback had little personal interaction with Michael, he had watched him across the court and he likes his, uh, he likes him, he admires him. He likes his demeanor. Mm -hmm. He said that what he does as a co-plaintiff going against the decision of the court, this has never happened before in Germany. So from his prison cell in Germany, far north, Marcerich is still clear to his name. And after I write to him this, after I wrote to him this year, he replied saying he had hired a private investigator to track down the man who he says told him the tape recorder in 2007. So on a mild Sunday morning from April 1st, Ruback had met Michael in Osberg, and as he had been in most days in court, he was dressed casually in trainer's blue jean and a black jacket. And despite his legal setback and the tendonitis that continues to bother him, he came across as a calm and warm and very calm and warm, and he had a dry sense of humor. So as as they drove the Bavarian courtyard towards etching, he tried to explain the meaning of Uber Fordit, the word he used to describe the police in 1981. And that means when the task you have is bigger than your capabilities. I think I said the word right, Uber Fordit, Fordert. So Michael knows the case material so well that he has put in far more hours of research than any of the lawyers for the, defense, for the defense or persecution. That when he speaks, it was with the precision and that detachment of a special investigator rather than a relative. So he, he was putting in his work. Mm -hmm. Michael went from big brother to investigator one-on-one. <laughs> <laughs> so after the park, after parking their car, beside the road between Etching and Skorndorf. Now they're going back to where the kidnapping took place. They're, they're back in their hometown. Mm -hmm. He noted it was probable, it was probably where the kidnapper had parked his car when the when they brought the box to force. An SUV track led into the woods. We need to walk about 141 meters, Michael said, and then look 20 meters to the left to locate the spot where Ursula was, was buried. Well, now they're gonna retrace tracks. So we don't know if she was sedated and carried or if she was forced to walk there, he said. But we know one thing, she was taken on a path specially cut through this forest. Michael's father had died several years ago. And in 2016, his mother moved out of the family home in the village to Osborne. But his younger brother, Hanus, the surfer, still lives in the house, along with two Syrian refugees who went out the bottom floor. So Michael had phoned him. He did not want to show up with the journalist unannounced. And Haynes invited him in for coffee. So they, they never spoke about Ursula. And with his oldest sister and their mother, Haynes had never talked to the media about his sister's death. Even though Michael says that, the private, that in private, his family supports his work on the case, as do his children and his new partner. So he clearly got either not married or he has someone new now. Yeah. But in the public eye, at least he is 
he is alone in his quest to reopen the case. Well, in the public eye, he's alone, but he does have the support of several others, including his family and friends. So after lunch at a restaurant beside the lake, where the sailboats have bought it in the distance, we walk, they walked along the road towards the forest, the route Ursula took on her way to gym class nearly 40 years ago. Now, let me ask you a question, Todd. How would you feel reliving that moment? Or going back to where the moment where a loved one died or was murdered, so to speak. Ooh, uh, a little creeped out, I think, and either either creeped out or emotional, one of the two. Yeah, yeah. Me personally, I I don't know. I probably want to just close that chapter of the book. But if I don't have truth, maybe I would do what Michael did. Yeah, because that's a long time. Forty years is a long time. Yeah, man. Yeah, and if you see his pictures, he's all he's got gray hair and everything. He's an older guy. So, yeah. Kudos to him. Kudos to him. So the spruce trees are much taller than where they were, and the undergrowth less thick, but the path is still the same. Three meters wide on a compact gravel. Cyclists on an electrical bike sped by. After a few minutes, after a few minutes, as we as they whirled to a small jetty legend to a wooden hut used by bathers, Michael had stopped on the path. There is where Ursula was kidnapped, he said. It's where her bike was found and where the bell wire ended. Now the bell wire is was about 140 meters long and it was a coil of insulated copper wire that the kidnappers had used as part of a warning system. Although the police had noticed the wire while searching for Ursula, they only learned of its significance more than a year later. Uh oh. So when investigators visited the private boarding school in Swandoff to talk to the pupils about the case, two students came forward saying that seven or eight months after the kidnapping, when chasing an owl through the forest, they had found the bell wire strung through the trees next to the lakeside. Mm. Hmm. Now the boys then did, did a very strange thing. They tipped the wire down measured it on a school athletics track and then kept it in their dormitory in a locked box until the police visited. Uh-oh. So they have the stuff still. Yes, sir. Wow. So on examining the wire, the investigators released it and it must have been used during... No, I'm sorry. The investigators realized that it must have been used during Ursula's abduction. So while while one of the kidnappers waited for the victim, the other presumably served as a lookout further along the path, with their fingers on a button that would light up a bulb or a sound, a buzzer at the end of the wire. Wow. Hmm. So you, clearly it was more than one person. Seems like it. That's that's, that's man. It was a. I didn't think it was one person from the start. Yeah. It could, you know what? It could be multiple. Like, obviously it was multiple, but it could be like three. Wow. But we'll find out. Michael believes the wire is one of the key pieces of evidence that could help identify the real kidnappers. Besides hunters and joggers and cyclists, 
the boarding school pupils also knew the forest as well. Yet it appeared that none of them were fingerprinted at the time of the investigation. Figures. Another piece of evidence also hints at the possible involvement of the younger people in the plot. An impression on the paper of one of the ransom notes revealed a mathematical probability tree of the sort taught to teenagers. Uh-oh. Mm. Uh-oh. Very interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> so Michael also notes that in a comic found in the box, one of the main characters drives a Fiat 600. The car that was mentioned in the ransom note, and which was rare in Germany at the time, suggesting the kidnappers may have read the comic. Remember they had told the dad that to ride the uh, Fiat in episode one? Mm-hmm. 600? Sounds like Michael's putting pieces together. Sounds like it. So, man, so late last year, in an effort to have the case reopened, Michael submitted a dozier of all his new evidence and theories to the state persecutor's office in Augsburg. And in April, when they interviewed Matthias Nikolai, a spokesman for the public persecutor, he acknowledged that many people still had questions about the verdict in the criminal trial but insisted the judge had arrived on the correct decision in 2010 and that it was a final and absolute. What? Yeah. So in August, this became uh, official when the persecutor's office announced it would not be reopening the case. Wow. So that's... All that work for nothing is things, right? Yeah. Well, not, not exactly. I was going to say, so that's a crappy lawyers... ending to the story. <laughs> <laughs> well, it says, through his lawyers, Michael told the local press that he would he would be making no more public statements about the case, nor giving interviews with the media interpreted as him finally giving up. But when, when he emailed, now this is uh, Rubach, the lawyer for Marcevic speaking. When he had emailed Michael, he had recently said that that this was not true. He said that I didn't say that I'm not going to take this any further. That's all he said. So on September 15th, a few days after, uh, it was the 38th anniversary of Ursula's kidnapping and death. And they and as they have done for the past years, Michael, along with his two siblings and his mother, travels to to the graveyard in Etching, where Ursula is buried. Just the four of them, no partners, nobody else. There they remembered the little girl who left their left her cousin's house on a red bike. Red bike on the summer evening and never came home. And guess what? What's that? That is the end of the story. What? That is it. <laughs> so it's still <sighs> it's still it's still pending but he's still not done yet man yeah I thought you were going to come up with a miracle arrest <laughs> <laughs> I wish I did sir but that is the that's all I got from this case you know, this might be one of those cases that we actually get a follow-up like a year from now. 
You think? Yeah, probably so, because this was 2018 when they updated, mm-hmm. and we're barely, tw- well, not barely, but it's 2020 now. So maybe, maybe it might be updated pretty soon, or if not next year. But Michael said that um, he's not done yet. So who knows? Maybe they're still doing some investigation work. It sounds not over. It it sounds like there's somebody out there, dude. It just sounds like you know there's what? somebody it, out there. Yeah, it sounds like it's the kid mm-hmm. from the school that's not too far from there. Because what adult has comic books? Like, like I know we got there are some adults with comic books as a collection, mm-hmm. but who's gonna put comic book? Well, that was the '80s, so probably back then it was a little different. Yeah, it does. It does fit the era back then. Now you would think, you know, yeah. yeah I, I I get what you're saying. But uh, I I believe it was kids, man. I think it was teenagers. Trying to I get a quick book. Probably just trying to have a little excitement. Probably have a little fun, torment a little bit, because they kept her in a box, not knowing that she would die. It's not like they intentionally tried to kill her. Mm-hmm. But it, they did anyway, you know. Maybe, maybe, maybe Marsevic had something to do with it. Maybe he probably told the teenagers, like, "Hey, you know, you guys want to have some fun?" or blah blah blah. But I think teenagers were involved, and I think it was multiple people, more than more than two for sure. I feel like. Yeah, it seems. That seems. Um... It seems a little weird, dude, that, like, again, the way everything was set up, it seems more of a conspiracy of multiple people. It just, uh... Yeah. I don't know, man. That's... It, it's yeah. a very complex story. And I think it very, just... Very, very. I think the also thing that there was no D, hard DNA evidence, um, what is it brought up? You know what I mean? Like, as far as, like, uh... Well, there was none saved back in the day because it was the 80s. So I know sometimes you got lucky, like with a Golden State Killer, and they saved some of that stuff. But I don't know if there could have been some more DNA that they could have kept, that could have reversed it and did stuff that they're doing now. I mean, maybe that's still a possibility. That that could be the, you know, you never know. I don't know. Yeah. I just looked online to see if the uh, page has been updated. Mm-hmm. That was the latest update as of September 2019. So from this story, so maybe you gotta wait, maybe another year to find out the updates to see if what took place after. But um, that's the story that I have of the girl in the box, Ursula Hermain from Etching, Germany. Dang, three parter, man! I'm telling you, you had you had me you had me going. I'm, I was just waiting to see who the guy was or the guys were. <laughs> Damn it. Well, I mean, as of now, Mercerick is still in jail, and the German court system are basically saying, you know what, it is what it is, let it be. Michael, stop investigating. We got the guy. Let it go. Well, but how old is Mercerick now, does it say? Uh, I have to look. Or is he like in his 60s or something like that? Yeah, I believe he's in the 60s, yeah. Okay, so my... my... Michael, at the time, Michael's in the 60s. My theory would be if he is guilty of the crime, at some point if his if his um, what do you call it health starts to deteriorate, maybe he to try to clear his conscience before he dies, 
finally cops to it a hundred percent if it is him and maybe he could in uh also tell of the of his accomplice and stuff like that just sort of spill the beans before you go out um to me because if if the if the brother is not able to find out on his own investigation and the government doesn't want to move forward then it's pretty much in a stalemate unless something new pops up and if nothing new pops up that would probably to me be the only way they would get a hundred percent um what do you call it finality to the case just my just my opinion because damn i mean like you go all these years the parents have died family members have moved on uh that's hard man i mean and i could see where the family just doesn't want to be a part of it no more because it's like i I don't know man after a while i'd probably be like i mean i'm i may be like the brother but then again i may be like the the rest of the family and it's like dude look this is too it's too painful to keep looking back on he was 31 at the time of 1981, so 40 years have passed. So I believe he's like seven in the 70s now. Yeah, see that. So then, so then he would, yeah, he would be at an age where um, maybe he grows a conscience and finds religion, and maybe he just decides, I'm gonna just cop to it. I'm not going anywhere anyway. Yeah, you will hope so. There's a picture of him and uh, on the website I got, and he looks old. He looks like he's an older gentleman, gray hair, kind of chubby. Look like he he got about. You know, he actually looks pretty good for his age in this picture. Mm-hmm. I don't know how old this is. This may be in 2013 because it says this is a court uh, photo of him in 2013. Okay. So he was probably in the 60s at the time, but you know, I, I'm with you, man. He's older now. If he knows anything, if he is the person. He maybe hopefully he has the heart and just says what needs to be said. Yeah, because either way, I would I would think look if he's the guy, then his actions would speak louder than his words. So meaning, True. if if he's gonna if he's gonna fight to try to get himself out, writing letters to parole, um, trying to get people to take his case to clear his name to get him out, I would think he's more on the innocent side. But if he's staying in jail and he's staying quiet, living the life of a jail inmate, then he's most likely guilty. He just doesn't want to cop to it. Yeah. As of yet. Yeah, I, I agree. So. I agree. Shout out to Michael, man. I mean, he look, he, he, he saw something that wasn't right and dang near ruined his family. You know, he, you know his wife separated. They separated from uh, birth marriage. You know, developed in the nightest. You know, some people call him obsessive. You know, he's not giving up. You know, he took it, took it really to heart. You know, mm-hmm. he wanted to find out the truth of his little sister's murder, and whether it's Mercerick, who you know, he's like he said, if it's you, go to hell. If it's not you, I want to know what happened. Yeah, so, I agree. I, I really hope Michael has found some evidence now. It's 2020. It's been over a year since that published, since that article was published. So hopefully he found something. Or, and if not, I hope he finds his peace. True. So, but yeah, that was the story of Ursula Hermann from Germany. First time I did something international. So, you know, if I butchered any names, I apologize. You know, but uh, it was it was a story that caught my attention. You butchered him, but that's what made it awesome. 
right, thanks to my German friend here who helped me with the pronunciation. Thank you, Todd. <laughs> I didn't know what you were talking about at first until I'm like, oh, yeah, Deutschmarks. Because you were, you were like, it's money. Marks. I was like, what's Dutchmarks? <laughs> you were like, no, you're saying it wrong, bro. Let me help. <laughs> no, you said it way after that, but that was cool, though. I, I give you props. You tried, man. You tried. So you you, you know what Deutschmarks are? Like, you, you've seen them before? Yeah, yeah, I've seen them because my, my grandma used to, she kept some from way back when they first migrated from Germany. So... She yeah, had it's pretty cool. Man. Yeah, she had the original German money um, from like nineteen, I want to say forty four. She had some money from forty four because they moved prior to everything falling apart. You know, like uh, my my grandpa was anti Hitler, so he left first, and then he came back and got my grandma. So pretty cool, man. Pretty cool. Yeah, it's a crazy that's, story. That's pretty cool. That. That, that is, is, you know, it's your home. I would say your hometown, but you know, your your lineage. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely more of my people or my family over there than there is in the United States. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, next week it will be your story, Todd. Yeah, I've uh, I've got one. Um, it's only a one parter, but it's uh, it's let's just say it was such a terrible crime that the city that it occurred in could not handle the bad press that they changed the name of the city right after the case. Dang. Yeah. I already that, got my attention. That's how bad that one was. Dang. Yeah. <laughs> well, I can't wait to hear it, man. But, uh, and next week, Gabby Gab will be back on the show. Uh, she'll be back. She's fully recovered. And it didn't make sense for her to join she would have been lost from the story with them, so we'll be back to full cast starting next week. Uh, okay. Looking forward to that. Or this Thursday? You want to try it this Thursday? Oh, yeah. We can do that. Okay. Cool. Cool, man. What was a good story, my man? Thank you. Thank you. Got a little nervous, but it was all good. Never did a three-party. Nah, you, could, you couldn't tell, man. You handled it good. <laughs> <laughs> Alright bro, well that was our show for today And that was the Girl in the Box Part 3 A very frustrating Girl in the Box But but, <laughs> but it was a, But it was a very good story And this is we'll put this one under Unsolved So this will be like the first unsolved case Unsolved case Yeah, or at least unsolved until in the Michael bro- do some more, Until Michael do some more investigation Yeah, it's either unsolved Or we have a um, innocent man in jail Or we have a guilty man in jail That just hasn't copped to it yet So Yes. Take it how you want to take it, but that's how this story went down. Very, very complex with many layers, but it's very good. Yes. And very so, good. and if anyone's listening has any details about the case, maybe from Germany, if you're listening, if you want to tell us what happened or if you guys know any more about the story, just send us a comment, email us, uh, go to our website, www. No, I'm sorry, wrong one. Uh, go to our page on Instagram or Facebook, visit Grinding uh, True Crime Podcast, and you can tell us if you have any updates on that case. Yeah, or you can email us at uh, grindingcrime at yahoo.com. We have that one there as well. Go. Yeah. Was it yahoo.com? I think it was yahoo.com. Yeah. Um, yes. So then, with all that being said, we you can also get a hold of us once again at any one of your fine establishments of podcasts. Uh, media sources and then uh, for Todd Fox and the good and great narrator Matty Matt 
Yes, sir. Have a good one. Peace. We need to come up with an ending to this thing, too. I mean, we, we need some sort of ending. <laughs> we just don't have one. Yeah. We're all, see you? Maybe? Bye? <laughs> Working well, I like the, this, this is Maddie Matt and Todd Fox, the whole thing. I like that. <laughs> All right. Well, I was, seems like, yeah, no. <laughs> I was, I was kind of hoping for something crime-related, like we could say something like, stay off the streets or something. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> stay off the streets. <laughs> I don't know. Give us suggestions. Damn it. <laughs> Give us suggestions. <laughs> Oh man! Yeah, we'll just have to. We'll have to just watch try one, a new one every week. So we, we can say, "Watch your back and eat some snacks." Peace. <laughs> watch your watch your back and eat some snacks. Okay. I don't know, man. <laughs> yeah, we'll figure something out. All we'll right. Figure something out. We'll bring one. <laughs> we got to get with Gabby on that one. She'll probably come up with something. Yeah, she'll she'll figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, bro. Oh. Till next show. Uh, Till next show, brother. There you go. Later. Later.